Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. And welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. The first time I heard of today's guest was when in like 2012, 2013, I, I was the TV editor of the AV Club. And my good friend David Sims, who's now at The Atlantic and has been on this show before, came to me and said he wanted to write about this weird public access talk show in New York that you could access online if you didn't live in New York. But like in New York, you could watch it on public access. And it was hosted by this comedian who'd had some success in the sketch comedy improv scene. He'd been in the show Big Lake on Comedy Central, which is a famous bomb. And he had, you know, started this public access talk show. And what a strange idea. And yet the show was fun. It was really funny. It had so many great gags and so many great bits that I quickly got invested in it too, uh, even though I had to watch it on the internet and not on public access as it was intended to be seen. The comedian's name was Chris Gethard, and he is our guest today. He's done some really amazing things beyond his talk show, which moved from public access to the TV network Fusion to the True TV network before ending earlier this year. He's done a stand-up special called Career Suicide for HBO that is, I think, one of the essential stand-up specials of this decade. He has now written a book called Lose Well, which is sort of a life advice guide for those of us who feel like maybe we keep failing and don't quite figure out where we're going to go from there. Uh, Chris Gethard, who knows a little something about that, explains in the book how you can sort of use those losses to help yourself understand how to be better in the future. But it's also like a memoir of starting this weird talk show on, on public access and having that become you know, the thing that really helped his career take off. So we had Chris on the show today. We talked about his many, many, many projects. We talked about, you know, sort of this idea of comedians needing to be able to offend people and, and he gave one of the best answers I've ever heard to that question and then we talked about you know how do you write a book like which is a question a lot of us have and he is really one of my favorite interviews always and this is a treat of an episode so please stick around check it out I'm always surprised by your voice I don't know why your voice sounds different from what I'm expecting all right I don't know what that means but yeah, I hate my voice. I hate my voice too. So yeah, I always hated my voice, and then people who listen to my podcast have been very nice, and they say I have a soothing voice. Yes, hearing it in my headphones is is different. You know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, know what, what that that's about. Yeah, yeah. I should um, I should tell people the guest <laughs> the guest today <laughs> is Chris Gathered. He wrote the book Lose Well. He's done any number of other things. I'm sure we'll talk about, but we're here for the book. The title, Lose Well, um, just, just I mean, I've read it. I, I love the philosophy behind it, but just kind of tell the listeners who maybe haven't read the book what that means to you. First of all, thank you for saying that. Uh, Lose Well is this idea. It kind of came about via my, my TV show when we were on public access where I kind of went on this rant during one episode where I told another cast member 
who had said she was feeling a little bit like a loser. I said, well, that's the whole point. We're on public access TV. Like, we're the losers. We struck (laughs) out, but we're really good at it. We lose well. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. The goal is not to be perfect. The goal is to get out there and fall on your face and learn how to do that graciously and then get back up and see what else you can do. So this book is uh, really an effort to sort of – put every thought I have that falls under that umbrella into one place. I think a lot of comedians, um, people often approach and say, how do I get into it? How do I do it? And I think because I've walked a very non-traditional path, I get a lot of messages from people, mm-hmm. you know, online or people who come up to me after shows and, um, people always are like, well, you, you, you are the DIY guy. What was your thoughts behind it? And in particular, I had a uh, there was a, a girl I went to high school with who who reached out to me and was like, "I always wanted to go for it. You went for it. How'd you pull it off?" And she was someone I was very fond of who had, you know, just had to live a little bit more real life when we were young than I did. And I just started getting really motivated of like, I just want to take every everything that explains the chip on my shoulder and every thought I've had about this stuff and every like little piece of trial and error philosophy I've learned over the past 18 years, put it all in one place, maybe make it a little bit of a rallying cry for some of the other underestimated people of this world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, when I was just sort of starting out my career, my writing career, I really spent a long time thinking like somebody was just going to come up and like tap me on the shoulder and like lift me up <laughs> to yeah. whatever the next level was. Yeah. And I don't know where I got that idea. I think growing up a, a white man in America is probably a big oh, part yeah. of that. We expect that at some point. <laughs> but I, I also like what I came to realize was like I had to make it. I had to make it work for myself. Like when the opportunities yeah. came, I had to be – the way I was describing it to young writers was I always called it pack your parachutes so that when the the door in the plane opens and you have to jump out, you know, you're ready to go. And I'm wondering like what you think about like that idea of, you know, seizing opportunity but also like toiling away in anonymity to be ready for when the opportunity's there. 100%. It's, it's really – I feel like I'm in a, a pretty unique position to speak to the power of that because I would think, and I don't think I'm being too self-deprecating, I don't think I'm underestimating myself, but I would think that if I, let's say I wound up with a, a lead role on a hit sitcom tomorrow mm-hmm. and Critics love my performance. I would think that to the large majority of America, I would be viewed as some overnight success who came right. out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I had 47 episodes of a show on cable. I have a podcast that's doing very well. I've done character acting roles on a whole bunch of shows people love. And yet I would still be largely an unknown quantity. Right. And no matter how much I've accomplished, I've had an HBO special, like no matter how much of that happens to me, I still feel like I'm only on the fringe of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. So I think it just goes to show that as things grow and as things progress, it is all about, well, now you have this next thing and it becomes another sort of notch on your belt or it teaches you a little bit more about how things work. But I've had all that stuff and I still feel like, man, I'm just primed and ready for the real big thing. And you do that enough years. And, and one of the things I talk about in the book is start to realize, oh, there's no end. There's no end to this. And you're always going to feel that way. And there's always going to be that sense of like discontent or that you're not exactly where you want it to go. You will be well served to just sort of get used to that and enjoy that because Mm -hmm. it doesn't go away. 
Yeah. You know, something that, that you just said sort of like pinged something for me, which is one of the things that you've taken advantage of is traditional gatekeepers increasingly don't matter. You do yeah. a podcast, you do a show on public access. Yeah. Like These are things that you don't have to get past, you know, the traditional gatekeepers. But at the same time, like – that's really changed the nature of stardom. Yeah. Like there's like uh, – I'm thinking about like a figure like Donald Glover who both you mm-hmm. and I know who that is. My mom has no idea who that is. Yeah. Of course, like we all know – She who, might. She, she, it's at the point where she might. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we all know who say Tom Hanks or Denzel Washington is. And I'm like – I'm wondering like – and you may not even have thoughts on this. But just like that idea of like has that – idea of becoming somebody bigger? Like, has that just completely changed? Are you just always, you know, even if you have a hit sitcom, going to be kind of obscure to certain people? Well, it's funny because I feel like you know my career well enough to know. I, it's it's funny because I'm aware. I do an awful good job of, of sort of like complaining about being on the outside looking in while <laughs> constantly building things that intentionally <laughs> keep me there. Yeah. It's, it's sort of of my interest. And as far as is being a big star still a goal. I think for a lot of people it is. I think for a lot of the creative people I know, you know, being in common, I think there's a lot of people are still hungry, 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 bigger success, bigger success. I think one of the very exciting things about right now is that if that's not what you want, you can also carve out something else. I think, I think I'm an example of that. I think I was able to, you know, I was, I was able to survive and build a little career out of a public access show which in the four and a half years I was on public access, you have to keep in mind, you're not allowed to make money. You're not allowed to sell commercials or mm-hmm. have sponsors or anything. And I still used it as this kind of platform to get my voice out there. And that allowed me to go on the road as a stand-up and sell some tickets. And that allowed me to get, you know, we had a weird project that Bonnaroo contracted us for and all these little things that start to come about where I do think that we roll our eyes and underestimate young people right now. I think mm-hmm. this idea of the entitled millennial is out there. I think this idea of the overly PC millennial is out there. And I certainly understand the types of things that make people kind of uh, roll their eyes at that stereotype. But in my experience, young people are smarter than us. As every generation forgets, they're smarter than you. They're consuming things in new ways. There's people who are making tons more money than we know. And we and a lot of us in the traditional industry have not heard of them because they're on YouTube or mm-hmm. they're on they're building it off of Snapchat and Instagram and all these ways that I don't quite understand. And I do think the world is being progressively more built for my prediction. And I feel like I've always been good about sort of trying to predict things is you're going to see less people that are Tom Hanks level famous, mm-hmm. but you're going to see a lot more people who have a nice smaller life with something that feels a little more boutique, a little more individualized, a little bit more like you need to go find it and opt into it Mm -hmm. rather than it being a thing that's just sort of shoved down your throat via billboards and the fact that that's what's in every theater. That would be my guess. Do you crave that sort of level of fame? Do you, would you like to be Tom Hanks? No, (laughs) no. It's, it's funny. I, I, one of the things I write about in the book is that, you know, the first 10 years of my career, I was at UCB and, and I was 19 when I signed up. And like any 19-year-old kid, I was just like, I love this and that's why I'm doing it. And at a certain point, as everyone from UCB was getting more and more successful, the ego set in. Well, if everybody else is getting stuff like this, I, that means I'm being left behind and I got to go get those types of jobs. And, you know, I had a writing, I had a guest writer stint for two weeks at SNL mm-hmm. and they didn't hire me. I had a, a a sitcom that flamed out and uh, 
that I was the lead of. And, and, uh, those two experiences in particular, they really bruised my ego. And I had this moment of reckoning where I kind of stepped back and I was like, wait, like I have friends who work on SNL and I, I greatly, greatly respect it, grew up loving it. But if I'm being totally honest, I don't really watch it anymore. Mm -hmm. If I hear that there's a breakout thing, I'll go and track it down on the internet. You know, like, why am I getting sad? That's ego. That's a real jerk move of me to say, man, they're so wrong for hiring me for this thing that I don't consume. Sitcom, same thing. I don't really watch sitcoms. There are a ton from history that I like. I understand that there's millions and millions of people who do love them. I have friends who write for them. And they're, it's great. It's a great thing, but it's not my thing. Mm. So who am I to sit around getting sad and stressed and having my anxiety kick in because I'm not getting, it's a very entitled thought on my end. So that was when I made a very, very conscious turn to say, I don't want to keep fighting to be at the same level as some of my friends because mm -hmm. they're doing things and they're doing them great, but they're, that's their thing and it's not my thing. And that's when I kind of dove headfirst back into uh, my underground roots. It's interesting sort of watching that play out throughout the book because there are a few times when you're like, here's the stuff that's going on in my life. Like here are the things that I have the podcast, I have the show, I have the um, stand-up, all of that. And then like you you always drop in a paragraph that's like, I'm not just saying this to build myself up. And I'm wondering how much of that is reassure, reassuring the reader that like you're not full of yourself and how much of that is reassuring you, I have all this stuff. This is stuff that I've created, you know? Well, I often forget I still am prone to uh, beating myself up. And then I, I, it is funny. It's like I take a look, especially at the past three years, and a lot of good things all happen at once and some of it unexpectedly the HBO special and, and being in Burbiglia's movie and the podcast, those all kind of happened, boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. And after years of being sort of a lovable loser, all of a sudden it was like, hey, now you're in all these like uh, critically lauded things. How does that feel? And I had to reckon with that. So I think some of it is a reminder to myself. Some of it is, I think also I wanted to remind readers I'm promoting failure and losing, but I'm also well aware that those things are markers of success. And I'm not dumb. And I wanted to put those out there, I think, to, to make sure people know this is not snake oil. This is not me trying to trick you. This is me saying very much in a nuts and bolts way, this is how I got from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. I understand I have those things. I understand that that represents a certain level of success. I also understand that I'm writing about failure. And to make sure you know that that's not disingenuous, I'm going to tell you very honestly about all the different times that failure really informed that. And how failure, in a big way, made me ready for that and comfortable with that and uh, kind of showed me that, like we were saying, when I was younger, I probably would have wanted to be on SNL like any improviser. Now I think that I probably would have, uh, you know, died of a cocaine overdose <laughs> if I got that job when I was 27 writing there. And mm -hmm. it Failure not only taught me how to go for it, but it taught me what I really wanted. Mm -hmm. It sort of carved away at that over and over again. So I think the re reiterating of that is... This weird line of, yeah, I'm a little self-conscious about writing the self-help stuff. I want to remind you that I, I get all that deal. But also knowing that if I'm going to analyze that stuff and take it apart, I have to be upfront about what it is and what it represents to me. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are types of failure? Do we learn different things from different kinds of failure, I guess, is sort of what I'm zeroing in on. I think so. Mm -hmm. And I think 
the big example that comes to mind for me is there are failures you make because you take a big swing and you miss, Mm -hmm. and there's failures you take because you only go halfway and you don't commit fully. Mm -hmm. And that's a big line that I have found over and over again is that both in my own personal experience and in seeing a lot of other comedians around me, the ones who take big swings and miss rarely regret it. Mm -hmm. The people who only go halfway tend to sort of float at a certain level and get either very anxiety-riddled or very bitter after a certain point. I think failure that's born out of not going for it or getting scared and kind of hitting the brakes is very detrimental and and damaging. Mm -hmm. I think diving all in, even if it turns into a big public disaster, is very often super productive. Tell me about a time when you had a big disaster that where you did dive all in and it sort of led to you thinking differently about something or like led to you figuring something else out in essence. Yeah. I mean, there's one that I have a, a real fond memory of, which was, uh, we did the Chris Gethard show at UCB. It was a, it was a real hit down there. You couldn't get a ticket to the thing, switched it to public access. And if you, if you watched the old YouTube, uh, episodes, like the, the very early ones, they're bad. Like they're bad. <laughs> they don't look good. They're paced weird. They we didn't know what we were doing. And I can say honestly that a lot of the the comedy audience that we had built up in New York, they it just wasn't the same. It wasn't their thing anymore. They they bailed on it. They moved on, and that's fine. But we're up there every week going on uh, going on public access TV, and I'm like, man, I was the star of a sitcom less than a year ago. And now I'm eating it on public <laughs> access TV, and we we're trying to figure out the formula. Trying to figure out the formula now. We had planned an episode, and we were going to call it, it was Halloween. It, was, it wasn't on Halloween. It was the week of Halloween. We were going to call it the Halloween Spooktacular, <laughs> primarily as a way to point out how often people use the phrase Halloween Spooktacular, which mm-hmm. is such a cheesy phrase. And we were going to do a big, dumb Halloween thing, make fun of it, make fun of ourselves, and uh, whatever. And then simultaneous to that, there was a cast member of our show, a very, very funny guy named Connor Ratliff. Mm-hmm who he did a bit on our show where he was running for president, and he committed very, very hard to it. He invited every presidential candidate of 2012 to come on our show and debate him anytime they wanted. And as you would imagine, most of them ignored him. He got two replies. Mitt Romney's people sent a very nice letter politely (laughs) declining, which was mind-blowing. Even that would have been funny for us. But then if you remember this guy, Jimmy McMillan, Mm -hmm. the rent is too damn high. Ahead of his time. Ahead of his time. He was a guy who made a lot of waves, especially in the New York area, kind of became a a regional celebrity. I think probably known nationally, but really weirdly beloved in New York in that time. He wrote back to Connor. He was also running for president. He wrote back to Connor. He's like, great, I can do it on this date. And he picked the same date as our Halloween Spooktacular. And we had already prepared a bunch of stuff. And we were like, all right, well, now we have to build this debate last minute and we have to cancel our other episode. And then at some point I was like, what if we just do both at once and see what happens? <laughs> what if we just do, do it? So we, if you watch that episode, I have great fondness for it because it's like we have this guy who, who also told us, I don't want to know anything. about." I was like, let me explain to you our show. And he was like, nope, I just want to walk in and do it. This is Jimmy McMillan. So we were like, all right, he's walking in blind. We have all these Halloween decorations. We're going to abandon that and have a presidential debate. Everyone is here in costumes because we had told them it was our Halloween episode. It's the weirdest visual you've ever seen. But I can tell you honestly, 
I was like, we don't have time to worry about this. Who wants to rebuild it? Let's just do it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And if you watch that early run, that's in October. We start it in July, and it's the first good episode. Mm. It's the first one that we all walked off stage and we were like, that was it. That was what this show should be. And I think so much of it was because there were a bunch of outside factors out of our control that kind of changed our game plan last minute. And we're going, man, how do we... How do we make this feel safe before we walk out there? And then it was like, well, we can't, so I guess we don't. Mm -hmm. Let's walk into a very unsafe situation. And it actually, I think most people who are, who are fans of my show who, who watched it in those days would agree. It was the first one where everybody went, that, that's a cool show. Yeah. That is a cool show. And it was all born out of uncertainty and this idea of, I guess we just have to go do this. Mm, mm. A lot of the ideas we'd had before that we thought were really brilliant, and they weren't. And then the one that we assumed was going to be a throwaway that we'd be ashamed of forever was like the one that totally opened our eyes to most of what we did moving forward with my TV show. Right, right. I was going to jump in and describe the Chris Gethard show to, to people, but it's very hard. Yeah, it's a weird to thing. Describe. Was a weird and, thing. Yeah, it's, I it's, say, uh, yeah, it was, sadly it, enough. <laughs> it, it recently ended just shy of 10 years in existence. And the, th the thing I always sort of defaulted to is it gave me the feeling of when I would be at like a sleepover when I was like 10 or 11, and we would Love stay that. up way too late and watch Letterman. And it, like, that. it, it felt so much funnier because there was also that air of like, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. And like yeah. watching your show gave me that feeling. And like, Yet, you know, it's 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 hard to describe that to people. It is. And I'm wondering if you have reflections on, like, trying to keep pushing that show up the hill now that it's in your rearview mirror. I mean, I'm extraordinarily proud of it at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think we did it the right way. I think we did it with a lot of integrity. I think we stuck to our guns. I think that's probably ultimately why we got canceled. Mm. I want to be clear. I'm very thankful we had the chances we had. I, I'm supremely grateful to our network, but it was it was its own beast, and mm -hmm. we didn't want to let it get tamed, so we let it die. And I don't feel sad about it. My next big move is to put out this book that's all about how failure teaches you stuff. And I can say very honestly, because I believe in that so wholeheartedly, I'm not that sad that the show went away. I'd rather it die with some semblance of the... Uh, the integrity it always had than hmm. feeling like our numbers are so low, we have to change everything about it. I'd rather not. So I feel very good. It informed my creative DNA. I feel like the fact that we took it as far as it as we did gives me a lot of confidence about my ability to do things myself. I don't think I'm cut from the mold of uh, someone who's supposed to be the helm of a TV show. Hmm. I'm a an odd-looking and constantly nervous man who, as you can feel from these interactions, tends to ramble. We went and built it ourselves, and we forced it through, and, and that's a real sense of strength and really taught me how to kind of grab things by the reins for myself, and mm -hmm. I thank mm -hmm. God for it. And I thank God that I, most of all, that I got to work with the people I did on it because right. it really, between the people who watched the show from afar, between the people who showed up at the studio, between the people who were on screen, the people who worked behind the the, the scenes, it really was a true community. Mm -hmm. And uh, the power of that was really, really incredible. There's also something powerful about finding a thing 
nobody else has ever heard of and like yeah. feeling like you're in because like I I didn't I found you through my my friend David Sims who yes who's so kind to us yes, yeah used to write yeah. about the show at the AV Club and like I was like I gotta check this out and like yeah there's something to that idea of being in on something everybody else isn't that gets a little I don't want to say cheapened it's not cheapened but it does get a little um diluted when it finds too many people you know absolutely yeah and we were running into that you mm-hmm. know just just the nature of switching from something as strange and pure as public access to a commercial version of it, we immediately had some people who went, this is not why I got into it, and they didn't watch it anymore. And I get it. I grew up listening to a ton of punk rock. I talk in, in my book. I write a lot about how much punk rock has informed a lot of my choices. And and it was one of these things where I knew, I, I told everybody who worked on the show, we can't pretend that we're not selling out. Mm-hmm. We can't pretend we're not doing it. We're selling out. We got to now try to sell out the right way. Mm. There's got to be a way to do this that will be okay. And I will say, I think that those episodes, I think if you look at the cable episodes, uh, we certainly did sell out. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we had, so we, you know, we used to beg celebrities to come hang out one, and we'd get one every once in a blue moon. And uh, mostly it was just friends. I was like, now we have celebrities every episode and now we have commercials and now we have all these things that are clearly mandates about the pacing and how we have to keep teasing the big ending and all these tricks that are more built for traditional TV. And I felt it leaning more and more in that direction, which is another part of why I felt like it was time to end it. Mm. Definitely. The book was written before the cancellation, but it's being published now after the end. And you do allude in the book at least once to like, the show may not even be on the air as you're reading this. And I was like, you had to have known on some level that this fight was coming to preserve what it was but also find some way to broaden it and whether that was even possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the writing was on the wall that we either had to bust out big in a way that kind of caught on culturally mm-hmm. in a way that – I don't know. I feel like maybe the most recent example – history's most recent example, which is astounding because it was so long ago. Like the thing that comes to mind is jackass. Mm-hmm. That either was going to catch the way it did or it was going to go away, mm-hmm. right? It was such a strange outlier. It was either going to find an immense amount of momentum or it was going to keep heading the way it did. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it went the way it did. But I, I would also argue that if you know our show and you love our show – it's almost more appropriate that it got where it did and then it bottomed out and came up instead of making the 10-year market bottomed out at like nine years and 200 days. Like that's pretty appropriate for everything the show stood for and everything that I stood for. And unwrapping that and writing about all that as I had this looming sense that it was coming was was very interesting and very cathartic. And it was also kind of a source of strength for me because I'm I'm writing about the value of failing and failing hard and failing publicly, knowing that it's at the very least, on the horizon for me. And uh, it was cathartic to know, oh, I can kind of let this book stand as its own thing. But for fans of The Gethard Show who happen to read it, they will also know that this is, in a lot of ways, a love song, like a a tribute to the experience I had with that show and everything I learned specifically from that. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. 
This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smart water. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. The news today seems really grim. And it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. You're somebody who we talked about failures that you learn about from taking big swings that miss. You're somebody who loves to take big swings. At this point in your career, do you have a sense of the big swings that are going to connect and the ones that still might just end horribly? Never. I, Mm -hmm. I can't ever see it on the horizon. Like the most baffling one to me being like, my podcast is, is I think, by far the most successful thing I've done. Mm-hmm. The quickest, easiest attainment of a fan base. And they've stuck with it, and it's beautiful. It's also the least work I ever put into anything. <laughs> I've written, this is my third book. I slaved over them. My TV show, everybody knows exactly how hard I worked mm-hmm. on that because they watched it happen week to week. I spent years as a stand-up. I spent years as an improviser at UCB just working, working, working. And then I put out literally one episode of this show where all I do is tweet out a phone number and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then miraculously, got the first episode got featured on This American Life, and now it's this beautiful, vibrant thing in my career. But it just goes to show you, I thought that was the biggest throwaway. Mm-hmm. That was 100% like, oh, this probably doesn't have leg. Let's see what it is. And now it's like the by far the most locked-in, steady, foundational piece of things that I can rely on. Mm-hmm. It's mm. baffling. Hmm. There's other things I've worked so much harder on that <laughs> never went anywhere that no one ever heard of. The show's called Beautiful Anonymous. And you, like you said, you tweet out a phone number. Uh, I assume thousands of people call. Yeah. Uh, and then you pick one of the calls at random and you have to talk to them for an hour. Yeah. Like that's the idea of the show. And you use sort of your improvised, improvised uh, improvisation background yeah. to get like through that hour. And like – I think you're a wonderful interviewer, and I'm Thanks. wondering how does improv comedy inform interviewing? As somebody who does a lot of the latter and none of the former, I'm very curious about that. I think the main assets it taught me that have served me really well, even surprisingly as a stand-up, like everything I've done since, hosting the TV show, everything, I think there's a few different types of improvisers. Mm-hmm. And I think I fell into a category where I was never the naturally funniest person. So I really, really had to kind of learn the mechanics of it more than some other people. And one of the real things I loved when you start to like think hard about the mechanics of improv is it teaches you to want to listen more than you want to talk. And it teaches you specifically and even more, like I would say UCB in particular, their whole philosophy is listen more than you're talking, and really listen hard for what the most unusual thing is. What's mm-hmm. the thing about this that stands out? What's the detail that seems like it informs everything else? What's the thing that you hear that immediately raises a red flag where you go, that's what this scene should be about? Because that's that's interesting. That's mm-hmm. unique. Let's focus on that. And I think uh, 
you know, I, I spent 12 straight years. I think about this a lot. I spent 12 years at UCB where pretty much every single week for 12 years I was doing or teaching improv mm-hmm. five times a week. And I really walked away with that, I think, which is when I buckle down to have a conversation, I just listen. And when I hear that thing that stands out, even if it's under the surface, I go, wait, hold on. What about that? That was interesting. And that's all just muscles that are super strong from a decade plus of trying to keep up with the funniest people in the world as that theater exploded. Mm. Do you remember an episode of the podcast where that just kind of hits you like a lightning bolt, like, yes, I can pull this out and you sort of you, maybe you figured out what that episode was, but also like more what the podcast was from doing that. There, yeah, there was an early one. There was an early one that really informed it. And it's it's stylistically something I miss about the show now that more people know about the show. A lot of times now people will call up and say, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about this. They'll kind of know in their head what they want to talk about. And that's great. But I remember an early episode that I loved where a guy called up and he's like, I got a really funny story about getting a passport last minute. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hey, how's it going? This is Chris Gethard. Hey, Chris Gethard. I'm Anonymous. Oh, nice to talk to you, Anonymous. Okay, you get it going. So, uh, what are you wearing? I'm not going to... What am I wearing? No, that was a joke. What do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? (laughs) Chris, I have a story for you about how I made bureaucracy move quickly and didn't lose my job. I was like, okay, he's telling me, you know, it's pretty impossible. It's supposed to take weeks, but I got a passport for an international trip day of, and I'm going to give you a guide on how to do it. And, And that was pretty interesting in its own right. And then at one point, he offhandedly mentioned that he grew up in the Orthodox Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, I, uh, I said to him, and I wasn't making assumptions. I was, I was asking him questions because my immediate instinct was, oh, this guy's been cursing a little bit. This guy's been really freewheeling. This guy's been very energetic. And he didn't strike me as someone, he didn't strike me as someone who would be particularly religious, but just based on how he was speaking, let alone of a, of a religion that I think is very fervent in its mm-hmm. beliefs. So I said, oh, are you still Orthodox? He went, no, 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 I lost. I, I, left, I left the faith. Do you like, are you Orthodox? Are you an Orthodox guy? I'm not, but I grew up Orthodox. Well, you grew up very Orthodox, and then you walked away from it. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. I used to have a black hat and all that stuff. You did? You wore the hat? Are you, is your yeah, family still Orthodox? Did, did you all years. shift away, or did you yeah. break away from the family? Just me, yeah. Ooh, so that's a thing. It didn't go over well. Yeah, and I was like, oh, how come? And he was like, well, and he started telling me how... It was this really intense thing, and it cut him off from his family and his community, and there's been all these repercussions. And we kept kind of like weaving back and forth where he's like, okay, so the next thing you're going to do is if you're in a really big city, like a lot of times there's a smaller city nearby that also has a passport office. And if you're within striking distance of that one, you can just keep calling them. And when they have cancellations day of, you might be able to get in there. And they're like, oh, that's really cool too. Hey, uh, what are some of the – what are some of the aspects of growing up Orthodox that I just wouldn't know about? And you'd go, okay, so you got to know this about the way that, you know, about the culture, about the foods we eat, about this and that. And I'd go, okay, great. And uh, so do you have to get, do they do passport pictures at the office? No, 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 you got to bring those. So get those early in the day, right? Yeah, okay. So when you leave the Orthodox, and it was just this nice bouncing back and forth, and it was all because he had kind of offhandedly mentioned this one aspect of his life. And then um, I was able to kind of say, oh, that's just as interesting, maybe more interesting than this other thing. 
can I keep both balls in the air? And that became a very fun little game for me within yeah. the course of that call. Definitely, out of all these podcasts, this is a conversation that's gotten me so excited. Usually it's some 22-year-old guy who's like, uh, stressed out because I can't, I, I don't, I my, I don't think my improv group likes me. It's a lot of that. It's a lot of that. We just got. Well, Chris, deep. remember that I called you. I called you with a story about a passport. So, so, so yeah. So you get. Yeah, so you print out your plane tickets. Where I came from. Oh God, we all. You talk so in the book about, about how it was more com- more forthrightly comedic at the start. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I really appreciate about your work is how earnest it is. How it's not afraid to drop the jokes if you think it's it's going yeah. to say something. And like I'm wondering. You know how you've learned to let go of – because I know a lot of comedians who are like – they'll come in and do the show and they'll give a very serious answer and then they'll put in a joke at the end. It's right. a little self-deprecation. Right. You know? I'm wondering how you learn to like let that earnestness overtake you. Well, coming up at UCB starting in 2000 when it was a thing that legitimately no one had ever heard of and then by about what, 2004, 2005, it had this re- growing reputation as – the place to go to find comedic talent. And if you know the roster of people that have come out of there, it's some heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. And for example, my my two best friends that I came up with were Bobby Moynihan, mm-hmm. who is a supremely funny human being, and Zach Woods, mm-hmm. um, you know, from The Office and Silicon Valley. And Bobby is just the most, like he can charm a room instantly, harder than I've ever seen. Zach can say a sentence that, is so eloquent and poetic and beautiful that you can't believe he's making it up off the top of his head. Mm. And then I'd be, you know, the the famous show at UCB is the Sunday night show called Ask Cat. And when I started getting invited to that show, this was around 2006, 2007. And I'm not kidding when I say that there were nights where the roster up there would be Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, Jason Sudeikis, Horatio Sands, half the writing staff from Conan, mm. and me. And I was the low man on the totem pole. So... I realized at some point I really struggled with it. I had to get over my own ego because I was like, I'll just never be the funniest one. Mm -hmm. never going to be as funny as Bobby. I love him to death. He's my friend. I'm not trying to compete with him. I'm not as funny as him. I'm not as funny as Zach. I'm not as funny as all these people. So then it's like, well, what do I have that they don't have? Mm. Well, I'm more willing to be honest than almost any other improviser I know. I would very often play characters that were super depressed or Mm. I would very often play characters that were really pissed off at the powers that be. And it was kind of this fun game for me because the audience would maybe sense the authenticity but not understand how real that was, Mm -hmm. that I was just citing real-life examples. And as I transitioned away from improv and into solo work, I realized, man, uh, I was never the funniest. But that whole time I was building up these other muscles that allowed me to be just super comfortable being honest about how I'm feeling and who I am and... Mm -hmm. Mike Birbiglia, actually, who's, who's a dear friend and, and very much a mentor to me as well, he pointed it out to me at one point where he's like, you know, everybody who came out of UCB, you're the only one who's known for being yourself. Mm. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, everybody's great, but everybody's actors. They mm. play characters. Mm. You don't do that. You went way in the other direction. Mm. So I think the earnestness came from a limitation, like I said, a failure. Mm. I was consistently failing at standing out Mm. um, on stages. As I rose up in the ranks, it was hard to stand out with the people I was there. I would be the worst one in the show. Okay, well, I'm running up against a wall. What do I have to offer? Mm. And that kind of saved me and and I think made a lot of those 
people, it's, it's funny. I think I, I was never the funniest one in those shows, but I think if you ask a lot of those people, they would say I was one of the people they liked improvising with the most mm-hmm. because I did bring this other layer, this other element. Hmm. I'm proud of that. Your HBO special, um, Career Suicide, is very forthright about your struggles with mental health. You talk a lot. You Like you said, you talk very honestly about this stuff in your life. Like the, the book is full of stories, you know, that some people would be embarrassed to tell. Like I, I yeah. you know, and I'm that way too. I have that impulse to just be like, yeah, I'll just, I'll share yeah. it all. And like, obviously, if I'm going to tell a story that might embarrass somebody else, I'll clear it with them, et cetera. But like, if it's just about me, like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where that impulse comes from. Yeah. Like, do, do you have a sense of where that? I mean, I think the, it might be a little bit of a cliche, but for me, it was very, very true, which was that being the smallest kid in my grade mm-hmm. and having gigantic glasses and having a gigantic forehead and having a last name that spells out get hard and going through puberty about four years too late, mm-hmm. you'd imagine all those factors added up where I was pretty easy to make fun of. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I learned young was that if I put something out there, I have the power over it and not vice versa. And self-deprecation is pretty... Uh, ingrained in a lot of the comedy that I do. I also come from an Irish-American family. My grandparents were from Ireland. And I think that there is maybe a habit amongst that culture of let's tell funny stories. Mm -hmm. And then later that night when you're not all sitting there like crying your eyes out laughing and you think about the story your cousin or your aunt just told, you're like, oh, that's that's the darkest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Why were we laughing about that? Well, because what else are we going to do? So I think I kind of learned early from experience and example that dark stuff can control you unless you make an effort to control it. Mm -hmm. So for as much as I want it to be giving and forthright in career suicide, as far as telling that story and trying to help that conversation or help other people who have dealt with it, there's also certainly some element by which it is like, no, this is self-protective as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to pretend this isn't a part of me for other people's comfort. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it out there and own it because I've just learned from a young age. Mm. That keeps me safe. Mm. Another thing you talk about in the book is when you stop being terrified of improv and you said, I need to start being terrified of something else and that's when you sort of chose to go into stand-up. You're still doing stand-up. What still scares you? About stand-up? Stand, I mean, I, I did a show. I've, I've been doing stand-up at a pretty high level for years now, you know, on very competitive stages. I, I, do, I have a lot of love for other cities. I'm not putting anybody else down. I do think New York, as far as the stand-up scene goes, there's just so much stage time, so many people here. It's the best. And I think I can hold my own on most bills. And then Sunday, this past Sunday, we're recording this on Tuesday, two days ago. I bombed harder than I've bombed in maybe five years. Oh, wow. What happened? I just I, – I, I went up and I did jokes that have worked for a long time on a stage that I have done those jokes on hundreds of times. And it usually works. And my first joke was met with what can only be described as a silence so profound that it felt like anti-laughter. It didn't even <laughs> feel like an – like like an absence of laughter. It felt like the pendulum actually went past the neutral point into a new thing, which is the opposite of laughter instead of just the lack of it. And I, I tried. I said in my head, I'm like, well, I've been in this situation before. I'll dig myself out. Next joke, it was even, it was even more pronounced. And then I'm like, okay, maybe I'll pull out some hacky stuff that 
It's a little cheap. Some jokes about my last name spelling get hard. Stuff that is only like if the crowd's too drunk to focus on anything else, I can get them to shut up with this one. But I would never do this one in a show that like totally mattered to me. Nope, didn't work. Just played to absolute silence and was actually like giggling and had to like stifle the fact that I was giggling into the microphone because I was just in my head going, this is so bad. And then the fun part is I went up at the same club Monday night, same jokes, killed. Hmm. That's life. Stand-up will always be scary. Do you have a sense of what it is? Is it just the audience that, that dictates that? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think that audience, uh, it was a Sunday brunch show. Maybe it was because it was earlier in the day. I think a lot of the people there were maybe tourists from outside of the country. So maybe there was a little bit of a language barrier. But also, I was a little arrogant, you know? I will start a lot of shows with a joke about how we're all going to die in the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing a show at 1230 at night and they've had a couple drinks, they can laugh about that. Maybe when you're, uh, maybe when it's two thirty in the afternoon and you're trying to eat eggs Benedict at a brunch show, you start with something a little lighter than the apocalypse material, and it was <laughs> foolish of me to not have the foresight to see that. But that's part of what's so addictive and so fun about stand up is uh, right. you ask anybody, and no one escapes the bomb. It's mm. impossible. It's mm. impossible, and uh, there is no small amount of joy in it for me now when it happens because it's. It's it's rare enough that I like being humbled and I like going, what did I just do wrong? How did my instincts... Because if it's that bad, it means my instincts led me astray. Mm. It's never the audience's fault. I hate when comics say, that was a bad audience. I, hate, I especially hate when they tell an audience that they're bad into a microphone mm. because it is not their job to make me feel good. It mm. is literally my job to make them feel good. Mm. So to be up there and know my instincts were so off... Oh, I'm failing at my job right now. Ooh. Ooh. My, uh, uh, one of the, obviously, improv and stand-up are related. They're under the comedy umbrella. But sort of the difference that's obvious is improv has a whole bunch of people up there. Stand-up mm-hmm. is just you. But what are kind of the underlying similarities and differences between the two that maybe those of us who don't do this professionally wouldn't think of? It's a very strange relationship between the two. There's also a lot of animosity between those two worlds, which I think is really a shame. When I started, stand-ups really used to roll their eyes at us as improvisers. And then there was a golden age when alt-comedy exploded in New York. There was people like Eugene Merman and Dimitri Martin and, and Reggie Watts eventually, Berbiglia, John Mulaney, Pete Holmes. I think that whole wave of, of, of people, Chelsea Peretti, they really built a scene where things started to cross over. Mm-hmm. They were doing alt comedy in bars and back rooms and they would also dip over to the club world and they'd dip over to our world and we started dipping over to their world. The first times I did stand up was through that whole scene, Pete Holmes and people like that. And uh, that was a golden age. Now people don't like each other again. I think uh, – here's what I would say. I would say that a lot of stand-ups would be well-served – to try to have some experience with improv because I think the versatility and ability to roll with punches and roll with unexpected things, it can't be undervalued as a stand-up. And a lot of times stand-ups work so hard on getting it word for word perfect Mm. that they forget that 
it's not just in the writing, it's in the performance, right? And sometimes the performance isn't going to go the way you think. Sometimes somebody's going to heckle you or sometimes somebody's going to drop something in the back and it's going to make everybody lose focus. And you need to know how to recover. You need to know how to rebuild that and cover that time. And um, sometimes, like I said, the audience just isn't going to like it. And you might need to start adjusting on your feet. Maybe you're changing the order. Maybe you're leaving out a section that feels like it's helping to cause the problem. And I think that stand-ups could be well-served to do that. I know that for me personally, one thing I'm proud of is I think I'm out of the comedians I know, I'm one of the most comfortable getting heckled. Mm-hmm. I am very, very confident that I'm going to be fine. And so much of that is because I just treat it like an improv scene. I'm like, all right, what are you giving me? I'll give it back. Mm-hmm. The, my goal in this scene is to win and for you to lose. Like, I can do that. I've had so many years of experience. I think improvisers would be well served to remember, and I'm, I'm going to say this delicately because improvisers are not going to like this. My personal opinion, I think improvisers would be well served to remember that improv at its core, to me, is more of an acting style than a style of comedy. Hmm. And when you start doing comedic improv, sure, now you're going into comedy, but I think sometimes... Saying it without betraying my roots as an improviser, because I'm proud of those roots and love those roots. Sometimes improv isn't that funny, and improvisers will convince themselves otherwise by saying that it was um, very skillful. Mm-hmm. And even when it is, those things are not always synonymous. And uh, I think finding that balance is up to every improviser. And and sometimes I think that if they were to look at the dedication towards boiling down the funny to its core principles and distilling it down that stand-up requires, it could very well help situations where shows lag or drag. So there's big differences, and and those two scenes do not necessarily appreciate each other very well. But I think that for me, when I think back to that golden age with all those people I mentioned, it was actually – such a big part of why UCB exploded and why all those improvisers got attention. And I think when you look at that roster of names that was part of that stand-up roster, they all benefited and went on to greatness as well. Part of that, I think, is because they let their guards down and learned from each other instead of opposing each other. Mm. And I wish it would happen more. I wish it. I wish those walls didn't go back up. You Sorry mean, for the long, nerdy <laughs> answer. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. You mentioned early in our discussion... Uh, how the young – the kids today uh, don't sort of frighten you um, in the way that I think. Um, you and I are kind of the same age roughly. Uh-huh. And so I'm I'm just old enough to remember the 90s comedy scene, which was very, oh, we got to do political incorrectness. We got to tell, right. you know, faux offensive jokes. And But I also like sort of – I understand where the people who are saying those are actually just offensive jokes, like where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you're in that same space where you like – can get both of those sides in some ways. Yeah, it's it's very funny because there's so much, there's so many think pieces about comedy right now. <laughs> and I read them just like everybody else does. And it's, it's weird to see that comedy somehow culturally represents this bigger picture to people about society. It's, it's so weird. And um, one real problem I have mm-hmm. is that I think there's a little bit of a double standard amongst comedians because I do think that comedians sometimes have to say 
potentially offensive things. I do think that, especially when you're testing out new material, if you want it to have teeth and you're trying to make a point, you might piss some people off. I know when I was working on Career Suicide, it made some people very, very uncomfortable. There were shows where it bombed hard because I didn't have the balance of funny right yet to make people comfortable. You can imagine bombing with material that personal, a particular brand of loneliness. Also, if you've watched Career Suicide, you know that at one point I quote someone else who says the N-word in the show. And I'm quoting someone else, and I'm citing it as an extremely negative, horrible thing in my life. It doesn't change the fact that I am a white male saying the N-word. I said it on HBO. It's terrifying. And you can imagine it took me many, 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 many tries to figure out how to say that in a way that reflected the reasons I was saying it, the values I had. It offended people. There were two different times where people, when I was doing that show off Broadway, stopped me and yelled at me. And mm. I understood it. One time where the audience started booing them and I defended the audience member who was yelling at me saying, no, we're not going to boo someone who's offended by a white guy saying the N-word. You have to be able to offend as a comedian. What would George Carlin's career have been like if he never took a chance on offending? What would Richard Pryor, have you watched Richard Pryor? Mm. Some of that feels risky today and it was what 30 40 years ago he put it out what comedians often forget is that while we are allowed to offend audiences are also allowed to get offended right this idea that comedians often say which is like you're being too pc why does everybody get offended it's like because you said something offensive and that is fine Mm -hmm. and your impulse that comedians have to be able to be truth tellers i agree with it but this idea of we get to say whatever we want while I do think it's true, it's a very much a double standard to me to go, but you don't get to react the way you want. Mm-hmm. You have two options. You either stand by that joke and say, I am willing to offend you and I'm willing to create this dialogue and I'm willing to have this fight. I think Carlin and Pryor are two examples of people who they did offend and they were able to they were also willing to go, Yeah, no, I stand by it. Come at me. Whatever. Or if you're trying to say it wasn't that offensive, you're too PC, you need to, I, th- I think, respect your audience more and figure out how to make that point in a way that lands how you intend. Mm. It's not on the audience. I know like, there's a lot of really big comedians now who say, like, I'll never play a college again because they're all too PC. And I'm like, I don't know. I've, I've played colleges. And it, like I was saying before, I think young people are pretty smart. And there might be some elements to which this is a challenge to upgrade your writing. Mm-hmm. It might just simply be a challenge to you to round out that joke in a way that is better. So yeah, we have to be able to say whatever we want. I will defend the free speech of comedians to my death. But don't get mad when people get offended at offensive stuff. Mm-hmm. It's your choice. Own it or don't. Don't tell them they're being babies for mm-hmm. reacting to something you said. It doesn't You don't get to have it both ways, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think some comedians get mad that I would say that, but it's true. You don't just get to scream and yell and say whatever you want and walk away. And then when people go, uh, I had a problem with that, go F off, baby. Hmm. Like, no, no. <laughs> I, I will say there's been a couple examples, scant few examples where there's one in particular where a comedian named Sam Morrill, hmm. great comedian, just had a special on Comedy Central. He got slammed with a think piece by someone who saw him who really crushed him for telling a rape joke. Mm -hmm. And 
I do think rape jokes are overdone. Earlier in my career, I had a couple of them and then realized, it's too, why does everybody have these? Because it's, it's, it's easy to be shocking and, and it's, it's it, it, who, that easy shock, it, it's, it's, if, it's being, if this many people have them, that's, it's a problem. It's, it reflects a problem and it reflects a hackiness. That being said, he got slammed for this joke and it wasn't mentioned that this was like a late night show billed as an offensive show. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little unfair. Mm. I think it's a, there's been some times where comedians get slammed for stuff publicly where I'm like, no, that's a good dude. Mm. And that was a show billed as this show will shock and offend you. If you're not going to mention that, that's an awfully tough thing. Right. So some of that. But by and large, I think it is comedians' fault when we offend. And you have to either just decide, no, I'm okay offending those people mm-hmm. or fix it. Do you like all this attention paid to comedy, this idea of think pieces and stuff. Because on the one hand, I I enjoy thinking about comedy intellectually. Like mm-hmm. I'm never going to be a comedian, but like I like thinking about it. On the other hand, I do think sometimes context, like you mentioned with your with Sam Morrell, like gets stripped away in yeah. those situations. Yeah, it's – I don't know what you would say because I feel like you might have more insight into this than I do, which is like, like there's a little bit of a popular sentiment the past 10 years or so where people say like comedy now mm-hmm. is what music used to be. Okay. And like if you – I feel like there's been a thing, right, where it's almost like, yeah, if you if you were someone who likes uh, Dane Cook, that kind of says something about you. And if you like Kevin Hart, that's mm-hmm. like another major label artist, but maybe one where you're like, oh, no, the tunes are still catchy. And if, if you like Reggie Watts, you're listening – you're probably listening to like the replacements or Husker Du. You know the underground stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like – and – it almost feels to me like the think pieces are similar where it's like I don't get why comedy is the zeitgeist thing that mm. people put it. I mean obviously the elephant in the room is that Louis was the top of the comedy food chain, had a critically praised show and landed in the spot that happened and obviously um, – Obviously, that makes a lot of things tumble downhill in the comedy world and puts a big spotlight on it. But in general, I don't know what to think. There's there's a part of me that really loves that people appreciate comedy so much and obsess over it, and all these think pieces are reflective of that, and I get to have a career mm-hmm. because people love comedy so much right now. It's booming. But to me, comedy is beautiful partly because it's like a pretty basic art form. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, what I always loved about it too. Growing up, is it's like, it's the common people's art form. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. it's accessible. You go in, you laugh, you go home, you have a couple of drinks. It's like it's like a working class thing. That's why I always loved late night TV. Like late night TV is like, yeah, you come home, you eat dinner, you put your kids to bed, and you watch that monologue, and you watch somebody make fun of the president, and you like, yes, yeah, stick it to him, and now I'm gonna go to sleep. So I don't know. This idea that it's overly intellectualized is in a lot of ways something that I think takes it pretty far away from what I love the most about it, which is that it's a little working class for the common person. I think one of the things that uh, somebody who writes think pieces, (laughs) one of the things Uh I struggle with is when you are pulling out an aspect of any work of art, you're talking as much about the culture as you are that work of art. And yet too often it's just sort of like, pounding on, you know, this TV show did something I didn't like. And like, 
That's interesting as far as it goes, but can you pull that out to talk about something in the culture, you know, and a yeah. lot of times people can't. And it's, it's, it's strange because I see some people who I'm friends with or who I'm in a certain sphere with, with where I'm like, like obviously Louis is its own thing and, and, mm-hmm. and he brought his own think pieces down upon his own shoulders. But I look at someone, for example, someone who I, I'm, I'm not the tightest with but who I'm very fond of and who whenever we see each other, we say kind words and catch up. Amy Schumer is someone who I feel like mm-hmm. has come to represent something in people's minds in a way that I don't always know is fair. Mm-hmm. She is somehow this cog in culture when she's, as far as I can tell, and maybe I'm just too close to know, she's just like a really funny, relentlessly hardworking person mm-hmm. who's put out a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and a lot of it has clicked with people over time. But there's think pieces like that or even having been on Broad City where it's like there's think pieces where it's like, I know Abby and Alana pretty well mm-hmm. they're working really hard to make a funny show mm-hmm. but then there's a lot of think pieces that put it on this bigger pedestal and it's weird and then I won't name names and I, I'm not someone who likes to talk smack and I don't want to put anyone else down and my policy is always if somebody's paying their rent through comedy that's great there is a certain side of things where there are maybe some think piece comedians now as well hmm. there are maybe some people who have learned how to play the game mm-hmm to get those things when I'm not certain that if you put them in in the actual gladiator pit of comedy that they'd always be the ones wowing the crowd as much as the buzz would denote. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe at times I've been that person right. who has a lot of the the pieces but I bet I bet I would bet there were some comedians that when Career Suicide came out, they were like, "That's not funny. Why is it on HBO? Mm-hmm. It's more sad than funny." Those were some choices I made. Yeah, but I get that that might be a little bit on the think piece comedy side of things, and I don't know what to make of that. Sorry, I talk so much. About that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're kind of like heading into the end of the show, and I, I do want to ask you a little bit about like, what did you learn about yourself from writing this book? And, like, how did you sort of choose which stories from your life to include to fill the story out of your main thesis of losing well? I think the thing – it's funny because the answers to those two things go very much hand in hand. The thing I learned about myself, it's very much involved in the stories I picked because the re- I found that the reason I kept picking a lot of stories, especially the anecdotal stuff from my past because the book has – that, stories of how I grew up. Then there's also some stuff that's just straight up, here's some philosophy I've developed over 18 years of doing comedy that might help you in whatever you're pursuing. Then there's career-based stories. I I think those are like the three major categories. The ones from my past, I found I kept picking um, because a lot of my ideals showed up in my life when I was way younger than I ever thought about. Mm -hmm. A lot of my professional decisions that I'm most proud of go right back to things that I came to believe when I was 13 or 14 years old Mm. or things that I saw about my dad when I was eight years old that I didn't even realize I was grabbing onto. And one of the things that this book underlined for me was that I had a really hard reset point when I was 30 years old where I realized, man, I am not going about this in a way that I'm really totally proud of. Mm -hmm. 
And realizing that made me take a step back and kind of re-embrace a lot of the values that I learned when I was a kid. And I don't know that I'd ever put that puzzle together about myself so much. Mm. I don't think I ever realized that a lot of the things that were very positive guides and like a good moral compass for me about how to approach my career had nothing to do with things I learned doing comedy, Mm -hmm. but more about like seeing how hard my dad worked and how he treated people around him, seeing how much uh, jobs I had when I was 18 or 19 taught me about things, how much music became the model that I replicated way more than comedy. Mm. You know, being 13 years old, going to my first ever concert, which was a punk show in a church basement, and watching these bands where I was 13 and all the kids were 16, remembering, oh, these kids just went and made it happen. That that directly goes back to why I went to public access. Mm. And it's not something that I had fully put all of the puzzle pieces together on before I sat down and wrote this. Mm-hmm. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So okay. ask you some I'm of those. What, uh, whether you saw a movie, watched a TV show, uh, watched a stand-up set, listened to a song, what's the last kind of pop culture thing that you did and what did you think of it? The last thing that I experienced? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. The most recent thing that I experienced. I know I just saw a movie, but I can't remember what it was because I see too many movies. I will say the, the thing that jumps out. Okay. This is not the most recent technically. I've seen a movie since then. But I saw David Byrne in concert. Oh, wow. The King's Theater in Brooklyn. And I missed the boat on the Talking Heads, man, in a big way. I missed the boat on Talking Heads. And only in the past year or so have I have I started to realize the brilliance of Talking Heads. I was more, as far as the CBGB stuff goes, I was a Ramones guy. Mm-hmm. I like the straightforward punk rock. But Talking Heads have been really appealing to me. And my wife wanted to go see David Byrne. I went and saw him. And oh, my God, that is an artist. Yeah. Every every aspect of that show was well thought out and done with intent, and I can tell you by the end. Both my wife, my wife is a, an artist, has done a lot of music and, and dance and Broadway stuff. And both of us walked away. We walked out, and she was like, "That show was so creative that it makes me feel like I've never done anything valid in my life." And I was like, "That ma- yeah, it makes me feel like everything I've ever come up with is just." complete <laughs> pile of horse shit you know like that's what that was so just like such a fun show but also so artistic and it was choreographed and outfits were on point and they had lights that made them 30 foot tall shadows that were dancing I was like oh my god this goes way beyond the songs got, I gotta think much harder about how I present my work I love when you know enough about what you're doing to know how little you know, you know? Yeah, it's always humbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always humbling. Who is the comedian, living or dead, that you've learned the most from but that you never met? I mean, Andy Kaufman, mm. as far as, I think you can see it in my work. As, as far as I'm going to go up there and talk about suicide, mm-hmm. he did things that were scarier than that. I mean, he had people jumping up on stage to punch him in the face because of stuff he was saying. As far as doing the public access show, so much of it is making the audience uncomfortable. I think that's the obvious answer of it's, it's, I tell people that my favorite comedian of all time is Andy Kaufman. And a lot of times they're like, but you're so honest. And he was always hiding deep in characters. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, 
I'm always trying to add other elements to my stuff. Mm. And he was the king of that. It's going to be funny, but it's going to be completely uncomfortable or awkward or rage-inducing. One mm. of my favorite things he ever did was uh, he went on stage at a club in L.A. and he was like, hey, I have this uh, cyst on my neck. And anybody who wants to touch it can touch it for a dollar. And he just spent his whole set having people come up and pay him a dollar to poke his cyst. And I'm like, what a weird experience at the comedy club. <laughs> this was in a club. <laughs> I, I would have paid a dollar. I would have. I would have absolutely. <laughs> and that's something, too, when you think about it. It's like you might see that out in Brooklyn today mm. at these weirdo Brooklyn shows that I love so much. But imagine seeing that on stage at, like, the comedy cellar. It would be... That's the bra- that's like the bravest, ballsiest thing I could imagine. <laughs> what were you doing? People must have been so confused. And uh, finally, whether it was for the the company you shared it with or the quality of the food itself, what's the greatest meal you've ever eaten? The greatest meal I've ever eaten. I was driving cross country in two thousand four. My friend Nick and we came to Houston, Texas. This was back when I still ate meat. And we found a barbecue place called the Williams Smokehouse. Mm -hmm. And we went in. It was on this, like, sandy, desolate road with houses on the road, not a commercial strip. And we parked, and we went in, and we were the only ones there. And the person at the counter, like, didn't even pay attention to us. And I was like, oh, if their service is this bad when there's no one here, this food is about to be great because there's some reason this stays in business, and it's Mm -hmm. not the service. And they brought a plate of ribs to our table. Well, I'm not exaggerating. Nick was in the bathroom. I was totally alone in the dining room. I ate the rib and physically threw it back down on the plate because it was so good. And in that moment, I'm not kidding, the song that was playing was uh, Take My Breath Away. <laughs> ding, ding. And I was like, this between the song and the food, it will be impossible to top this experience. And then I tried to go back there years later. Me and Nick were going to make a trip because we always talk about it, and it burned down. <laughs> Can't ever go back again, which somehow makes the meal even better. That's amazing. The book is Lose Well. Chris Gethard, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by me, Todd Vanderwerf, who knows only how to lose poorly. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor is Griffin Tanner. Our executive producer of audio here at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allright, and our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and our studio this week were at the Vox Media Podcast Studio in New York, New York. You should please rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are sold. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, ITYI.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. And you can also tweet at me at TVOTI. And here's a special request. If you have a favorite moment from the show, please send it to us. We're thinking about doing a Greatest Hits episode over the holidays. uh, And we'd love to hear what your favorite moments were from the show so we don't have to do any work. Tweet that at us or email it to us. Whatever. It's going to work out. But we'll be back next week with somebody from the world of arts and culture, media and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. And until then... We're going to take this show to public access because Los Angeles public access needs, you know, a vaguely thoughtful interview program (laughs) that used to be a podcast and is now going to be a public access talk show. 
Maybe. It, it might. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste.